Let's pray together. Hallelujah, Father. Hallelujah to your name. Hallelujah for the Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. Oh, Lord God, I marvel that we can remember what happened so many centuries ago and what you planned before the foundations of the earth and the way that it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is changing lives even now here and today. It is, you are drawing more people out of darkness and into light. You are calling more people to turn from worshiping and loving the things of the world to worshiping and loving you and the things of God. Lord, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that now we worship the same God and we look to the same scriptures that the people of God have turned to for centuries, Lord God, and we ask that now your Holy Spirit would speak to us clearly, that you would give us hope and faith and love that we might live our lives following you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Churches, you're taking your seats. Open the scriptures with me to uh, Ruth chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the seat back close to you, in front of you. Ruth chapter 4 today, we're going to consider verse 13 to verse 22. Uh, We're finally come to the end of this book. Uh, These past few weeks, learning about the story of this family who went through such sorrowful suffering. And today is kind of like the end of the story when the the credits roll at the end of a movie. And you see that while there were people working, uh, actors, there was a set, there was lighting, and there was things you could see in the four frames of a film, so many other people you couldn't see actually were the ones that allowed the film to be made. I took a course in university that I loved. Definitely, definitely my favorite course that I took in university. It was an elective called Film as Art. The requirements were watching movies. (laughs) It was in the humanities, and we got the opportunity to watch well-known movies, but necessarily like the most popular box office movies of all time, but the ones that were important in progressing cinema and film as an art form and the technology that was associated with it. And I learned a few things about how films worked in decades past differently from how they work now. One of those things that I thought was interesting was, like today, actors are like free agents. Any movie, after the other, they can work with any studio they want. Now they can work with Fox, here they can work with Disney, here they can work with Sony, here they can work with Paramount. But back in the day, actors were like signed to a specific studio and could only make movies with that studio. Um, Also the, the credits themselves of movies. Now there are, the rolling credits happen at the end, and there are maybe a few credits at the beginning um, uh, of a movie, but back in older times, the rolling credits of all of the names actually sometimes happened at the beginning of the movies. And it's helpful to see that, and maybe you just jump out at the end of them, but you see that there's more people involved to act that you didn't see at all who actually got this thing done. And in Ruth's and Naomi's story, While we saw the activity of humans, we saw Boaz working and Ruth working and Naomi's struggles, what's actually happening in this story, leading the story out of heartbreak and into hope, out of despair and into redemption, is the director of this story who's orchestrating everything behind the scenes, and that's God. And that's what God's still doing today. 
in the cosmos, in the whole world, and in each of our lives. Even if you may not see it, God's guiding hand is at work in your life, even in your suffering. And what I believe God's word is going to teach us today is that God's guiding hand offers hope for each day. Even if you can't see it. Even if you can't feel it. That means that doesn't mean that God is far from you. In your suffering, God's guiding hand can still offer hope for each day. So as we do to honor God, would you stand with me as we read this passage of scripture together? We're going to read Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 to 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You can take your seats, church. Even though you may not see it, God's guiding hand is still at work in your life. And the work of God's guiding hand offers hope for each day, even in our suffering. But what do I mean by God's guiding hand? Is this some sentimental coffee cup, Jesus take the wheel type thing? Is it just let go and let God? No, I'm talking about something more. When I use the term God's guiding hand, I'm talking about a theological idea called God's providence. What's God's providence? God's providence is God's guiding, God's work in guiding history towards his intended purposes. And don't be confused, though, though we see the activity of men and women here on earth leading countries and nations and cultures in positive ways and in dramatically negative ways, God's at work in all of it. Some people think about God in God's activity in the world in a way that I don't agree with, but it's pretty common. They think about God like a watchmaker. A watchmaker gathers all the pieces, assembles it all together, winds it tightly, but then once it's for sale and you buy it, the watchmaker no longer has any work in it, and the watch just goes by itself. And a lot of people think that that's how God is at work now in the world, but that is not how God is work in the world now. No, God is at work in the world now, leading human history towards his intended purposes in the same way that um, a painter who is painting a mural on the side of a wall on a city street in the same way that they're painting like that. She'll put up the scaffolding, she'll get all of her materials, 
And though the wall might be 20 foot by 20 foot, she's working at two inches by two inches. And you might look and be like, what on earth is she drawing? And you may be confused about what's happening here, but that doesn't mean she's confused about what's happening here. No, she's planned out the whole thing in advance. And she already has the finished product in her mind. And while you might be confused about how things are working, she will bring those two by two inches to 20 feet by 20 feet to be able to clearly see the final picture of the beauty that she's creating. And that's what God's doing. Okay, so I might be asking if I were hearing this message, all right, so what's God's intended purposes then? What is the full picture that I can't see yet? Where's God guiding human history? Well, do you remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus taught us to pray because that is the end game where the Lord is leading all of human history towards. The church right now, as we follow Jesus, can enjoy the kingdom of God, but it's not fully established yet here on earth. The church is kind of like an embassy of the kingdom of God representing the kingdom of God here on earth. But when Christ comes back, Christ will be inaugurated as king and his dominion will extend across all nations and over all kings and every knee will bow before him. And when he comes back, all the effects that happened at the cross, which are now affected in individual hearts of people who believe, will now be affected across all of creation. All of the curse of sin, all of suffering, all of pain, all the sorrow, and all of death will be eradicated when Christ returns. That's where he's leading us towards. And even though you see on the news protests in metropolitan cities across the world and, and uh, skyrocketing market prices and unlivable um, housing and, and presidents who are leading and, and, and prime ministers and kings who are leading people in such immoral directions, and even though it seems like things are out of control, you're looking at two inches by two inches. But the kingdom is the full picture that God is painting. And he's not just doing it in the cosmos. He's not just doing it in the course of human history. He's doing it in our individual lives. God's guiding hand is not just guiding human history. He's guiding human lives. Do you see the evidence of God's guiding hand at work in your life? By God's grace, I can see things in my life that is so clearly God's providence. And when you believe in God's providence, there is very little wiggle room for coincidence. I can see God's providence in even me just being here, working at this church. I started an internship here in 2010, and my internship, my employment was supposed to be two months long. January will mark 10 years that have now been at our church. I'm really thankful that when the elders of our church offered me a fir my first full-time job as director of youth ministry, and my first response was no, I'm really thankful that they didn't take that no and move on to somebody else. But they were gracious and patient with me and the Lord orchestrated things so that by the grace of God, I'm able to serve the church of God here for as long as I had been able to. And I see God's guiding hand in that. I see God's guiding hand in, in my marriage with, with my wife. We were so, we were like literally like 
so far apart of each other geographically. But then the Lord brought us together in ways that seemed like could have been a coincidence, but I know it wasn't coincidence. It was God's providence. There were too many things that lined up so that we were able to be together. When, before I even knew she was a person existing, she was at school, at a school here in GTA, a university, and the elders of our church asked me to send a bus shuttle to that school to pull people here. And the first time she got on the bus and came here was the first weekend that I was preaching at our church. And more things like that, that way beyond our control, that's so clearly God's providence and not just coincidence. Can you see God's guiding hand in your life? Can you see the, he is leading you towards him? But you might not be able to. If he, even if you don't see God's guiding hand at work in your life, that doesn't mean that he's not working and he's not there. His hand is at work. And it does offer hope for each day. And I want to show you now through this close of this passage how through Naomi's life, God offers uh, three ways that we can have hope. Three ways we can have hope each day because when we know that God's guiding hand is at work in our lives. Here's the first one. Because of God's providence, the broken can be restored. Naomi was broken. Badly. A famine forced her to leave her hometown to a foreign land. Her husband died in a famine. Her two sons remarried, but their wives couldn't give birth, and her two sons died. And now she was left as the sole provider for two young widows, and she couldn't provide for them. She was broken. Her No males were left in the family to keep the family name going. Their family name was about to be annihilated. And if their family name was going to be annihilated, their share in the promised land would be gone too. Everything seemed broken, but God was working in the background and he allowed one of her daughters-in-law to come home and another man to come in and remarry so that a child was born to keep the family name going who would be able to keep the land in the family and keep the inheritance in the family. And, and today we see the child born. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And they went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Though this story has been following Ruth and Boaz, and though the book is titled Ruth, the main character isn't actually Ruth. It's Naomi. It was her conflict that we were, came in the beginning, and it's her resolution that we see at the end. And after verse 13 ends, and Boaz and Ruth give this child over to her, they exit the story. And now Naomi is center stage. In verse 14, look at this. Now there's this kind of like women-only baby shower happening. Verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. It's amazing that these women are there with her sharing her joy. Because these are the same women who first met her when she came home from the foreign land, Moab, after her husband and two, uh, kid, two sons died. Now they're sharing in her joy, but previously they were sharing in her sorrow. 
but they've watched and observed God restore through a redeemer. Now the child is there. And she said when she came back from Moab that she went away full and came back empty, but she's no longer empty anymore and they're rejoicing with her. And just like the men of the town offered a blessing to Boaz in the last passage, now the women of the town offer a blessing to Naomi. And we read the blessing in verse 14 and verse 15. There's three aspects of their blessing. First, they blessed the Lord from providing this child. Blessed be the Lord who provided, left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. See, verse 13, the events kind of go by really quickly. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her. The Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. But if you think about it logically, that, like you get married, you have a kid, it's taking at least nine months, right? But, but what we see is that it happens so quickly after marriage, which is actually a miracle. Because when Ruth, before Ruth was a widow and married to Naomi's first son, Malon, she was with him 10 years and no kid. So when the women say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, they're recognizing it's not coincidence that you went 10 years barren and immediately bore a child. It's not coincidence. It's providence. And God deserved the honor for providing this child so that Naomi could be cared for. Next blessing they offered was for the child himself. May his name be renowned in Israel. This is pretty amazing. They offered, the men of the town offered a blessing to his father, Boaz, in the last passage. And it was a renowned name that he would have in the city, Bethlehem. But the women prayed that his son, Obed, would have a name that's not just renowned in the city, but a name that's renowned in the nation. And we'll see soon just how renowned that name actually would be. A blessing for the Lord, a blessing for the child, then a blessing for Naomi. They blessed Naomi in two ways. First, verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life. This child was gonna, brought, his joy back, brought her joy back. She was spiritually drained. She was bitter towards God. But now that she saw that God provided, her bitterness was gone. Her joy remained. This child would restore and, and maintain her vitality and joy in the Lord. Second, they say that he will be a nourisher of your old age. An elderly woman in their culture couldn't provide for themselves, and she was only growing older. But as she would grow older, the boy would grow stronger, and he would be able to work the land of their inheritance and provide for his grandmother's needs. Newborn children make us feel really optimistic. Like we saw today, this young boy, uh, Lewis, and when we see other young children as well, because we see just so much potential in them. And when you see a newborn child and you think about their potential, you wonder just like, what will they be when they grow up? What will they do? It's like, oh, this little one, he'll, he'll be a doctor or she'll be a lawyer or she's going to be an artist. And it would take a really weird parent to have a pessimistic attitude about the child's future. It's like, oh, my firstborn son, you're going to squander your inheritance, aren't you? Yeah, you're probably going to get involved in organized crime. Yeah, parents don't really think that way. They think positively, but sometimes we know 
parents' expectations can be a big weight, can't they? And I wonder, are these women in Naomi putting too much of an ex- big ex- of an expectation on this boy? Like, he's the one that's going to make sure she has joy in the Lord. He's the one that's going to provide for her. What if, he, what if he doesn't? How could they have the confidence that he would actually be like that? And you know how big of an expectation they put on him? Remember, in that culture, if you were to like share your name, like, you wouldn't say, like, my name is Jason. Because your name isn't just like a, a nice thing. Your name actually was the essence of your identity. You wouldn't say, my name is Jason. I am Jason. The meaning of your name was central to your identity. Do you know what Obed means? Obed means servant. They say, she, he's going to restore your life. He's going to nourish you in your old age. He's going to serve you his whole life. Really? How do, you, that, that, how do you have that confidence? The text tells us. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. We saw the love that Ruth had for her mother-in-law, Naomi. That never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. There are some things that uh, kids inherit from their parents biologically. You've got the same eyes, got the same facial structure. Because of nature, they inherit some things. There are some things that kids inherit from their parents because of nurture. Because as a result of their parents' character, they, you know, they have the same humor as their parents. They have the same entrepreneurial spirit as their parents. These women knew how great Ruth's love was for Naomi, that they knew she's going to nurture and raise him in a way that he will love his mother-in-law just like she did. And this was good news that would restore Naomi. The family line was broken. But a redeemer stepped in Boaz so that the family line could go on. And because of a redeemer, and because of the love of the redeemer, the broken family could be restored. And Christian, Christian who's going through various trials, this is the same hope you have today too. Because of the love of your redeemer, Jesus Christ, in the midst of all of the brokenness that you've experienced, the love of your Redeemer can restore you. You may be feeling broken like Naomi was, and man, her brokenness was deep. She was spiritually broken. She was emotionally broken. She was economically broke. But because of a Redeemer and the love of a Redeemer, all of those things were restored. And you may not be able to see how God is working at right now in your life, but even though you don't see God's guiding hand, it does not mean that God's guiding hand has left you or drawn from you. Christian, God is still at work in your life. And you can be restored by the love of your Redeemer. And God's love may be doing things that you may not be expecting or even wanting Him to do in your life. But the love of your Redeemer is working for your good in His glory. Look at this passage on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to 7, and I want to show you one of the ways that your Redeemer is working through your suffering for your good. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 7, In this you rejoice, 
though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the midst of your suffering, your loving Redeemer is using this suffering as a grace to refine your faith, to test the genuineness of your faith as gold is tested through fire. And that's painful. But we would just want to be out of the fire. Can't, can't God do it another way? But know that there are ways and strides of growth that you can reach that are only attained through suffering. And this, our suffering can go really deep and hurt a lot. But the Lord wants to use it to refine you. The Lord can use it and through it restore you. And the restoration that the Lord might have in mind for you might be different than what you want. There are many beloved, faithful, God-fearing Christians who have died in their illness and not been healed from their illness. And the restoration that God had from them wasn't in this life, but it was in the life to come. The Lord may allow you to be able to have the grace of being restored from your failures and your sins in this life, and he can. But whether that restoration of our brokenness happens in this life or in the life to come, even in the midst of our brokenness, we can still have peace because of God's guiding hand. And this is the second way that providence produces hope for each day for us in our suffering. Because of God's providence, the broken can be restored, and because of God's providence, the restless can find peace. See, this, this providence that God is working for this family and these two widows wasn't just for these two widows. It would have effect and result and an outcome not just for a family, but for a whole nation. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. His father, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. How renowned would Obed's name be in Israel? So renowned that he would become the grandfather of the greatest king in the history of Israel, King David. Yeah, that, that King David, that same one who was the one who defeated the giant Goliath. So you remember, the story of Ruth happened in a tumultuous time. The time of the judges, a time in Israel's history where there was turmoil, economically, spiritually, politically, but it wasn't supposed to be like that. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and had promised them to go in a land flowing with milk and honey, but there was frequent famines and frequent wars and fighting. Because when they came into the land, they were supposed to rid the land of all the foreign nations and the foreign gods. Otherwise, they might have been tempted to dwell with the foreign nations and worship the foreign gods. And they didn't rid the nations. And they did fall into temptation. And they didn't worship the true and living God. So as a result, God was punishing them. They were restless in wars, in pain, but God had planned for them peace. And in the midst of this wicked time, 
full of turmoil, the Lord was working in the background, not just for this family to restore their family line, but to restore and bring a king after God's own heart. And when David came, after that just coward of a king Saul behind him took his own life, then David came and finally did what the judges and Saul and Joshua couldn't do. He finally rid the land of the foreign nations. He finally allowed Israel to finally truly worship the living God and have the peace that God had promised. God's providence for one family wasn't just for one family. It was for an entire nation to find peace. And even in the midst of your suffering, the Lord can give you peace. That kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. That kind of perfect peace, like a river, calm, with a steady tide, rather than the turmoil of a storm and waves. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. I've shared this before, though. Uh, if I were to compare peace to an actual fruit, I think I would compare it to an avocado. Avocado is a fruit, right? It's not a vegetable. It's got the seeds inside. These avocados, when you buy them, they're like, like rock hard as a baseball, usually. And then you just sit it there on their counter, and it pretty much is just screaming at you, don't eat me yet, don't eat me yet, don't eat me yet, eat me now, I'm too gone, expired. And, and that's kind of what peace is like in our lives. S out of season so frequently and expires so quickly once we have it, right? I can enjoy my quiet time in the morning before my kids are up in God's word, but then my kids get up and it's not quiet anymore. And then I go to work and just like you, I can have stress and anxiety and, and fears and or you can go to school and be afraid of what your friends are going to say to you or if your boss is going to take a strip off of you. And, and the peace that you had in the morning is like gone before lunch. Let alone the anxiety and the fear and the despair we can have in times of suffering and trial. But trusting that God's guiding hand as at work can give us hope that allows us to have a real abiding peace that doesn't expire quickly, but abides and remains. And even the type of peace that produces joy, even through the midst of our suffering. When you come home at the end of a long day and you see your loved ones, there's usually a question that we ask one another, right? How was your day? And if you just want to move on or really don't care to share, there's usually a similar way that most of us answer, right? It was good. What if we were to actually ask, answer that honestly after days of trials and sufferings? What would we say? What am I supposed to say if I'm being honest with my parents after someone at school who I thought they were my friend, I found out they've been gossiping about me. What am I supposed to do after, and say honestly how my day was after I came home from work and my boss stripped me down for a small mistake right in front of my colleagues? What am I supposed to say when I come back from the doctors after getting some tests done and I got news that I never expected I would have gotten? 
what would I say if I was really honest? Well, there's something that you can say when you have hope and peace, when you trust that God's guiding hand is at work. That's really sincere and not just some fake Christianity. James chapter 1 tells us what we can say when we have hope and peace. Let's look at this together. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. Is it a joyful experience to be gossiped about? Is it a joyful experience to be stripped down at work? Is it a joyful experience to hear about health crisis? No. No, it's not. But you can count it as joy when you trust that God's hand is at work because you know, as this passage says, that God uses our suffering and our trials to produce within us a newer sense of maturity, a steadfastness, an endurance, so that we would be lacking in nothing. There's a sense of growth and strides of growth that we really can only reach if we go through times of trial and suffering. So you can count it joy even when you're hit like a semi-truck that ran through a red light when you know that God's guiding hand of providence is at work. And you can say, today sucked, but it was still a joyful day. And I still have peace because I have hope because I know that God's at work. In those times, God hasn't left you. In Naomi's suffering, God hadn't left her. In Israel's immorality of the time of the judges, God hadn't left them. He was still at work. And you know, when we look out of the state of our world right now, it can look like God has just abandoned us. Look at all that is happening. Where's God? But even when we look outside from our lives and outside from the church and into the world, God hasn't abandoned the world either. God's providence offers hope for each day that the broken can be restored, the restless can find peace, and the lost can be saved. There's hope for our world. There's a good future for our world. God has not left us up to our own destruction. This story is not just about one family and not just about one nation. But this story of hope and redemption is also God working in the background, preparing that a way that the lost in the world can be saved. And maybe you're here today and you know you're lost. Maybe you're here today and you know that you are a child of God, but man, you've been wandering. If you feel like you're lost or feel like you're wandering, you can be saved. The hope of God's guiding hand is calling you back home today. I want to read the last four verses, verse 18 to verse 22. And it might sound like this is just a list. Why are we reading a list? But it's a very meaningful list. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now we already heard about Obed and Jesse and David. And it's kind of repeated here at the end. What's the point of these all, all these other names? Why repeat yourself? We get it. David comes from this line. Why is this important? 
Well, the first three lists of names in verse 17 is an informal genealogy, an informal list of a family lineage. Verse 18 to verse 22 is a formal family lineage or genealogy that actually follows a pattern that ancient cultures would use in their documentation of the family lineage of royalty. The same pattern is being followed here. Uh, there are 10 names. The fifth is an important name. The seventh is an important name. The tenth is the king. Interestingly, this exact same list of 10 names plus four others shows up in the exact same order in another passage of Scripture, in another genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1. Why would the Gospel of Matthew care to share these seemingly obscure names in this same order? Because in that genealogy, it's showing the divine royal lineage from where Jesus Christ came from. The family that was restored wasn't just Naomi's family, and it wasn't just David for the sake of the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ would come from the line of the family of David. So that a king would come to bring peace for the nation of Israel, a savior would come to bring redemption for the entire world through what God was doing through two widows' lives here. And Jesus himself said, that he came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Sure, the world can seem hopeless. You may feel like you're lost or you're wandering, but God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't forgotten the world and its hopeless suffering. He's still working and still seeking and still saving more. Now, a skeptical person you might hear about God's providence and ask themselves some questions. Like, all right, you're saying that God's at work. You're saying that God's leading human history towards his kingdom will there be no suffering and no sin and no death. Okay, but why is, what's he waiting for? Why not just come do it now? People are suffering now. Well, maybe he doesn't actually care. Or maybe he just actually isn't able. That's not the conclusion I can find from the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3 actually says something else. You're, if you've asked that question yourself, you're not the first person in the first generation asked that. Generations passed, even in the time of the New Testament, people were asking, why isn't Jesus coming back? And in Matthew, or excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, God tells us. God tells us that he desires no person to perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient waiting to send his son back to set his kingdom because when that's done, there's no more hope for the people who haven't turned to Christ. That's the line in the sand. But he's waiting to send Christ back because he's patient so that more might be rescued from perishment and that more might reach repentance. And if you are lost today, God's calling you back to him to be found. And you might not know why you're lost. You just have this feeling like I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But God's word tells us why you're lost. You see, God created you so that you would live in harmony with him. But every human being made the exact same decision that Adam and Eve made at creation. As Adam and Eve decided that they didn't want to follow God's rule and authority and they wanted to be, follow their own way, 
every human being has turned away from God and sinned. Every human being is a spiritual criminal. And God is a righteous judge. And a righteous judge is going to punish every criminal for their spiritual crimes. And you're lost from him because you're continuing to follow your own way. And you're going on a hopeless path to hell. But God's calling you back today to him. See, there's a way that we can, the, the punishment for our crimes can be absolved. Because Jesus himself suffered the payment for our sin, the cost of our sin, the, the, the condemnation of our sin when he died in our place on that cross. And if you believe that Jesus died in your place and you repent, you turn back and now commit your life to follow God's way, you will be saved. You will be found. You will be reunited back in harmony with him. And following God's way, you won't feel lost anymore. So if that's you, I would implore you to turn to Jesus, believe on him, and repent of your sin. Some of you, though, you, you've, you've already made that decision, but now you're wandering. You know you're a Christian. You know you're born again, but you are, you've gone into the world thinking that the love of the things of the world is better than the love of God. And you're living your life in a world like a gambler, thinking that it's going to give you some return back. Like, you heard of this great thing that all of your friends are doing and you've left the church and you want to go back to him. Like, like someone who spent day after day buying lotto finally wins the lottery, but it's not enough for him, so he goes into the casino and then gambles it all away in the slots. A Christian, if you're wandering in the world, that's what you're doing. You might think that what the world offers, it's like you've somehow won the jackpot but you're just going to spend it all away and lose and like the prodigal son, find out that you're actually in the pig's pen. And maybe you're there right now and you feel like, man, I am in the pig's pen and I don't, I'm a failure and I don't even know if I'm worth saving or worth loving or I don't know if God's going to receive me if I come back home, but Jesus hasn't returned yet. So that means God's still being patient with you. And that means he's calling you today to come back to him. He still loves you. He still wants you to reach repentance. If you say you've believed, but you've never repented, I don't believe that you're actually saved. You can agree with the truth that Jesus is Savior. You can agree with the truth that Jesus is Lord. But if you're not living like he's your Savior and you're not submitting to him like, you're, like he's your Lord, you're not saved. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that God wants you to reach repentance. He wants you to turn away from following your way and turn to him. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why God showed hope to this family, these two widows. That's why God sent King David. That's why Jesus came from his line. So that the lost could be found, repent, and believe. Believe on him today and you will be saved. I want to close with offering you this thought, Christians, friends. Do you know how long this story transpired for? The book of Ruth, four chapters, is a short story. Her suffering from the death of her family to the newborn played out over about 12 years. 12 years. Wow. I think we need to change the way that we pray about our suffering. 
I think a lot of the ways that we pray about our suffering is asking that we would just be ejected out of it. Get me out of this. Get me out of this illness. Get me out of this relational strife. Get me out of this bad. Get me out of this. The Lord found it fitting that Naomi would suffer through this for 12 years. Maybe we should stop praying that the Lord would eject us out of it and start praying that the Lord will help us endure through it. Because God has a plan for you with his guiding hand in the midst of your suffering. He has a grace that he wants to refine your faith. He wants to mature you. He wants to restore you. He wants to give you peace. He wants you to be found and saved. So don't consider your suffering that God's hand is away from you, but that God's guiding hand is with you, leading you towards the place that he desires for, your glory, for his glory and for your good. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, I believe what you've done before, you can do again. And as you were faithful to this family, I believe that you're faithful with us now. It's really awe-inspiring, Father, to see such a grand picture of redemption that not only did you help two widows and a whole nation, but through the help of two widows, you offered, brought a savior to the whole world. And God, I pray that we would see your providence here and trust that you're still at work and that your guiding hand offers hope for each day. So God, I would pray for our church and my friends here that they would recognize that you're not distant from them, but that you're guiding them back to yourself as you're guiding our world towards your kingdom. And would you give us confidence to trust that you're at work even when we can't see it? And in that trust, would your Holy Spirit produce within us hope, God, with joy and peace? We need your help. Help us to be able to worship you even in our sorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.